0: Good morning. Um, man, I, this is one of the few times outside that I've been able to hear people sing and I was stoked. I actually sing a little bit quieter so I could hear you guys sing. And so um, it's always a joy to hear the saints singing songs of praise. It always lifts m- my spirit, encourages me, and just reminds me of how wonderful it is to be a part of the church, to be a part of the body of Christ, to be able to gather here as Christ's people, many members, but one body, all worshiping the head, which is Jesus. And so I'm grateful to see you all here this morning. Uh, You may be curious why we're not in the Psalms. We've been going through the first book in the Psalter, which is the first 41 chapters in Psalms. And we're taking a break today because on Friday afternoon, Pastor Daniel got a phone call. Um, For many of you know that uh, Pastor Daniel's father-in-law, Erica's dad, Rick Escamilla, has been in the hospital for the past month battling COVID and the residual from COVID. And so on Friday, they got a call that they're able to go visit with him. So it's been over a month since they've actually been able to see him. And Rick is in critical condition. Um, So Daniel and his family packed up, headed to Riverside, are now spending time with the whole family, with Rick, and just really just praying and loving on Rick and the family. And asking God to heal Rick and so Daniel took off I jumped in the pulpit that's why one of the reasons why we're taking a break through the Psalms I jumped into first Peter because I felt like it would it's always good as a church to have an annual checkup on how we are doing as church members and to have an annual review on what it means to be the church I'm not gonna be testing you at all today there'll be no scores or grades given today it'll come next week no I'm just kidding but I think it's just going to be helpful and encouraging, and I hope by God's grace this sermon is encouraging. But um, at the end of the service, I want to actually spend some time praying for Rick because this is someone who a lot of you, as the church, know him. He's been a part of this body for a long time. Both him and his wife, Olivia, live in Riverside, but they commute up here twice a, a month, if not more, and have had such a huge part in loving and serving this community, helping us restore this building. Um, the Parsonage, I mean, Rick is just an amazing man who has dedicated himself to helping this church out. And so I'd love to pray, with it, pray for him at the end of our service. But today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses four through 12. And um, this morning, what I wanna look at is this passage of scripture that teaches us, and I think it reminds a lot of us about the role the church plays in the grand mission of God. If you were asked the question, what is God's mission? So if you were asked the question, what what is God doing? What is the grand mission of God? How do you think you'd respond to that? You don't need to yell an answer out, but just think about it. How, what is the grand scope mission of God? What verses might come to mind? I mean, I think a lot of us, for me, when I just thought about it initially, I thought of John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What a great mission statement, right? I also thought of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, says Jesus speaking, I am with you always to the end of the age. Both great verses that communicate God's mission to save people, which I would say is the most important part of God's mission. Personally, that's my favorite part, that God saved someone like me, that God saved someone like you. That is the part of the mission that means the most to me. But when we're asked a question about God, it's good practice, not just look at one verse or even a few verses, but to look at the whole Bible to understand what it is we're asking about God. It's systematic theology, the study of God, knowing what the whole Bible tells us about who God is And when we're asking a question like, what is the mission of God? It's especially important to look at the whole narrative of scripture. I think a child just ran. (laughs) It's okay, the parents got him. Bruce Ashford um, is a professor of theology at Southeastern Theological Seminary. And he had this to answer the question, what is the mission of God? He said, from what the entirety of scripture reveals, God's mission, although focused on glorifying himself by redeeming his image bearers, it also extends to renewing all of his good creation, restoring both man and every created thing back to its intended place and form. Let me simplify that. God's mission is to restore and to redeem all that's been distorted by sin. And this definition is consistent with Christ's ministry in the new Testament. What did Christ do when he came in a nutshell? He came to undo all that sin had tangled up and done. Christ did this first through his teaching. He came and taught peace, righteousness, love, justice, goodness, selflessness. Christ taught all these things that have been translated differently, pulled out of context ever since sin entered the world. All these attitudes had been retranslated. They'd been twisted when sin entered the world. Christ also did this through his actions. He did this through restoring life. He healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He unstopped the ears of the deaf. He restored the voices of the mute. He even raised people from death to life. And ultimately, Christ gifted peace between man and God by his own life, death, and resurrection. Don't you love the outside distractions? (laughs) It's so good, man. I'm waiting for the birds to come down. One Sunday, this crow came down on Daniel, like, woo! So we'll see if it happens today. Anyway, Jesus came to restore spiritually, but we also know and read that Jesus came to restore physically. Jesus fixed broken things, and he continues to do that. And a lot of us are recipients of that healing Now, the mission of God is to glorify himself by redeeming or restoring his image bearers and his good creation back to its intended place and form. And as I read 1 Peter 2, that's why we're in here today, I thought about the church's role in this mission, this great mission in restoring and redeeming. And I thought it would be encouraging to first look back at what Uh, Asher was was communicating, looking back at the Genesis account, looking back at what God is doing as far as restoring, what the intended place or the form that Jesus is striving for that God is working us towards. And the reason I want to do this is because I believe if we the church have a more robust understanding of God's mission in the world today, I believe it will do one of two things. It will, first of all, bring back, restore, or even reinforce in excitement to be a part of the church, to be excited about being the body of Christ, in the world that we're in today, a world that is in chaos, turmoil, a world that is making it harder and harder, at least in Western civilization to be known as a Christian, to be vocally a Christian, not un- I mean unique maybe to the Western culture, but in a lot of places it's always been hostile to be a Christian. That's one thing I think it'll do. And the second thing I think it'll do is it'll help us focus like maybe to redirect our focus on the part that we play as the body of Christ here in Santa Barbara, California. So that's my hope and prayer. Let's dive in. Now in 1 Peter, I have three points that I'll flesh out. The first point is gospel gathering. This is how we, the church, help further the mission of God is gospel gathering. The second one is gospel living, gospel living. And the third is gospel Loving, gospel loving. We'll get to these points, we'll unpack them in a minute. But first, before we do that, I wanna go back to Genesis, back to the beginning of time, because we see there the original designs that God has for his people to live in community, to live in righteousness, and to live in delighting in who God is. Now, these are the three original designs. I'm gonna communicate them the way I see them in Genesis 3 eight. Number one, we, in the beginning, Man and woman we were created to commune with God and others. That's a given in Genesis. Genesis 3:8 communicates that. We were created to commune with God and others. Number 2, we were created to reflect the image of God in all areas of life. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 communicate that. We're supposed to do that through one, creating, populating, cultivating, building like our creator did and does. We're supposed to do that through expressing love and pleasure and joy and delight and we're supposed to do it by just being honest and just and righteous and holy the point being is that we were created to be little little image bearers or mirrors of who god is in the world number three we see that we were created to have our ultimate delight in god and no one and no other genesis two seventeen. so i'm going to walk us through the genesis account let's quickly look at the beginning now if you're not familiar with the beginning of the Bible it is the beginning of human history it's the beginning of time where God created all that we see all that we hear all that we smell taste touch everything God created it all and all that he created was good the Bible tells us all that he created glorified him all that he created lived in perfect harmony with him and with one another and all that was created found delight perfect delight in him And after all the flying, creeping, crawling things that God had designed, built, made, spoken to existence came about, we read in Genesis chapter one, verses 26, that God made man and woman. I wanna read that passage for us. Genesis one, 26 through 31. This is God speaking to himself, the triune community. Let us make man in our image after our likeness the sixth day now what we're reading in the creation account is on the sixth day God creates a people for himself he creates them male and female and he created them he created us to enjoy him and to enjoy all that he created the pattern we see in this passage is that first God creates to both commune with him his people and to commune with one another We read in Genesis account that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Then Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It was undefiled love. They cared for one another. We also read that they were created them to reflect the image of God in all areas of life, to be fruitful and to multiply, to create, to cultivate the ground, the garden for human flourishing. And we read that God created them to have our ultimate delight, in God and no other, because God has given us everything we need, namely himself in Genesis two seventeen. Now I point this out because this is the only example in the history of man and woman, as far as living in harmony with God and each other perfectly. This is all we have so far, is the garden account of what it looks like to be in perfect harmony with the Lord and with one another. And this is where we see a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like until the fall came. It was, wasn't until sin entered the world that things just went completely sideways, got twisted up, messed up, and that's where we see all of the chaos in our world today. It's due to our first parents' disobedience that we were removed from the garden, the kingdom state, and the world as we know it is disfigured, it's tainted, by sin, sickness, and death, our ability, this is before Christ, our ability to glorify God through living and loving in community and sacrificial communities, developing a culture that promotes righteousness and justice, and finding ultimate satisfaction in God had been twisted in on itself because sin distorted all of it, became selfishly motivated, and wicked desires crept in and what happened in the garden did not stay in the garden, but it spread throughout all the earth. That's why we're experiencing it. This culture of death and decay and wickedness is everywhere. I mean, I don't think, I, I think our phones do a really good job at proactively showing us how fallen this world is. I not know what your news feeds or your social media, but not even our phones. It's now in our, it's so much more in our community. Just thinking of Rick, who I mentioned earlier, who's suffering from COVID and so many others in our congregation, in our community and throughout the world, who are dealing with the side effects and the effects of sin and its destructive power. But then, even when everything seemed lost, God had a plan. God had a plan to restore and to redeem. He had put forward this mission to redeem his people and restore a created order we hear about this first in genesis three fifteen. again the beginning of time god is telling us of his plan he tells adam and eve in verse 15 that they would bury child and although the serpent would bruise the heel of her seed his son the son of adam he would crush the serpent's head and claim victory over death and sin this is god's way of telling us listen i am sending someone to come and rescue you I'm sending someone to meet these needs, to make all these wrongs right, to put what's been put out of joint back into place and to redeem his people. And as time went on following the narrative through scripture, God worked through the lives of individuals such as Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Tamar, Moses, Rahab, Joshua, King David, all these men that are, if you're familiar with the Bible, have been great heroes, women and men, heroes of the faith, Who have strived for righteousness but honestly have just been carried by god's grace and god's steadfast love but god worked through them to bring about a people a peculiar people that are set apart to display god's grace and his mercy and his power and his might and at the right time in history through his people group god gave his son jesus christ aka the snake crusher the one who came to deliver us the one who came to bring about the kingdom of God the one who died on the cross for our sins so that we can be reconciled to him the one who i just mentioned was the one who's walking on healing and restoring cre- taking what's messed up in creation and bringing it back to the way God intended it and Christ called the people to himself and in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 we read about that a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all throughout redemptive history, God has been doing this, restoring a people group, calling men and women and children out of darkness into marvelous light, to proclaim his excellencies, to accomplish his mission. And here's the real trippy part about it, is that you and I are a part of that peculiar people group. Us, Sunny, California, Santa Barbara, and this little church, Apostles Church, meet in the back of a parking lot. I mean, I'm not look. I mean, maybe a lot of you are peculiar, <laughs> but I mean, according to the Bible, we have been chosen we have been set apart. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are taking part in this grand mission to redeem and restore the world. We are the church. Jesus said in John 17, 18, as you sent me to the world, as Jesus speaking to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. So here we are today, citizens of the kingdom of God, commissioned to proclaim Christ Jesus. Now, 1 Peter 2 is a portion of scripture that beautifully describes the church. Maybe you've heard sermons on 1 Peter 2. It really is just a great passage with so many facets to it. We're only gonna look at three of them, okay? There's so much here, but we're looking at three that apply to us, the church today. And here are my three points that I mentioned earlier. The three kingdom qualities that we see in 1 Peter that even harken back to Genesis is number one, the gospel gathering, number two, gospel living, and number three, gospel loving. Gospel gathering, gospel living, gospel loving. A whole lot of gospel there. The first point is the church proclaims the excellencies of Christ through gospel gathering. We find this in 1 Peter 2 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter is saying, You and me, we are like living stones. That's a strange thing to think about. I'm a stone, but I'm living. Stones don't live. But he's saying, You're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So consider a modern day building we call, we'll say bricks. We're like spiritual bricks that are being built up into the spiritual house. Now, only once in the New Testament do authors speak about our bodies being the temple of God in the singular every other instance is in the plural. The implication for that is that God's people collectively house the glory and the presence of God. And by doing so, as we gather, we're visibly showing the world the invisible, true God. Mark Dever stated, he's a pastor and author of Capitol Hill Baptist, he says this, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible but Christians living together in a local congregation make the gospel visible. The church makes the gospel visible. This is one of the points behind the metaphor of why the church is called the body of Christ. You know, when Christ came into the world, he was, as Colossians 1.15 put it, the image of the invisible God. He was God in the flesh. He was what we could, he was what the image of God, as far as what they could see, this is God in the flesh. When Christ left the world, now redeemed by Christ, we the body are now the tangible representations of God here on earth. That's what we're called the body of Christ. Our life together is meant to display God's love, God's peace, God's patience, God's forgiveness, God's selflessness, God's joy and sorrow and righteousness and justice and holiness. All that God is, we as the body of Christ as the church are meant to share and show that to the world, both verbally and physically. Now, personally, I've heard a lot about God's love when I'm growing up as a like as a Christian in a Christian home. I'd heard a lot about who God is, what it means to walk in the ways that God has asked me to walk. But it wasn't until I really I didn't really understand God's love or even fully grasp God's forgiveness until I started seeing people in God's family extending that love to me as a child, showing me that grace, seeing that patience in people. It was God's, the body of Christ, it was God's people who put flesh on those things that I knew about God. And as the church, we are called to do that. We are to show the world who God is by our patience and our forgiveness and our steadfast love for one another. God blesses us by allowing us to experience known truth in scripture to the people around us. And God absolutely reveals himself through his word, but he oftentimes reveals himself to us through his people. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. And in this book, it's a pretty popular quote, but he wrote about friendship. And he talked about how in friendship, when you have a friend group, you know, when you have multiple friends, that you can draw different qualities out from different friends. So when you're in a group, there's something that I can cause, you know, I can draw it from one of my friends, but there's other friends that come into that and draw other parts out of that friend. And so what he's saying is you can get a multi-facets of your friendships through community. He said, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. He says, by myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. He went on to say this, in this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself for the very multitude of the blessed which no man can number increases the fruition with which all of us see God for every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest that says an older author is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying holy 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 to one another in Isaiah 6:3 the more we thus share the heavenly bread between us the more we shall have that's insightful. That may be a little confusing, but what Lewis is saying is that it takes a community to know an individual well. It takes a community to know an individual well. This is so relatable in the body of Christ, right? I think this is why it's so important to have community groups and prayer meetings. In community groups, you ask these questions. I'm one of the leaders. I ask question. One person will respond out of the text, but then someone will be like, oh, that's great but also here's this this is also true about god and we all feed off of each other maybe you're like so funnel in a tunnel thinking about god in one way when someone else brings another aspect of who god is it totally is enlightening and encouraging the same with our prayer groups like we all read through the same passage of scripture and pray through that passage i'll pray and i'm like focused on one part of the text because it's ministering to me and i feel like i want to pray in light of that and then my brother or sister next to me will pray another part of the text i'm just like man i needed to hear that because that helped me fully more fully, robustly understand who God is in this moment, and it's really encouraging. And that's how the body of Christ can work. In community, we teach each other about God. We show each other the attributes of God, and it's very helpful. It's not by accident that all believers are likened to parts of a body. And when the parts come together, the anatomy and the life and the splendor of Jesus is more visible than ever. Now this living brick metaphor in 1 Peter 2.5, it also highlights the importance of every brick. So it highlights the importance of corporate worship, corporate gathering, community, gospel community, but it highlights also the, the importance of you as an individual and the part you play in the church. Like a brick in a wall or a part of the body, we are somewhat dependent on each other. We need each other. When a brick is missing in a wall, it's not only an eyesore, but it actually ruins the integrity of the wall. We need to be together. Tim Keller commenting on this passage insightfully pointed out that we as God's church, as a community of God's people, we should be built into each other's lives in a way that if we aren't there, it affects the lives around us. Let me read that. We should be built into each other's lives in a way that if we aren't there, it affects the lives around us. I've often told congregants that when they're not here, if they're asking about attendance or whatever it is, when they're not here, it's not only affecting them, which it definitely is affecting them, but it's affecting all of us. When we're missing a part of the body, it affects us. When I don't see someone that I love and care about, it affects me. I wanna know how they're doing. I wanna make sure they're okay. I wanna worship with them. I know this is just one gathering among many that we can can attend or go to throughout the week or set up throughout the week but gathering on Sunday to worship the Lord with all of God's people is special. And when someone's not there, it affects us and it should affect all of us. First Corinthians 12, six, Paul comments on this. Said, if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member is honored, we are all honored. A good question to internalize and ask yourself this morning is, are you built into the lives of the people around you in such a way that it affects people? And are you affected? when someone you know or someone here in the body is not here what a great encouragement to just get to know each other to love each other know how to pray for each other to be involved in each other's lives to be able to do life well together Now you might say well I'm not a huge believer in organized church or I can worship God in my living room or at home I don't need to gather with everyone I would just say this gathering in community is not a church thing it's a God thing It's something that God has called us to do. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, a person among a grand group of people who have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. The gospel gathering points us to one of the original designs found in the garden. It is the design to be in fellowship and communion both with God and with other, which is the fulfillment of the great commandment to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love one another as ourselves. It is the design that God had made. And when we gather together as the body, the watching world gets a glimpse of things to come in the new heavens and the new earth because they get to see the body of Christ practicing what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and each other. Our second point is this, the church proclaims the excellencies of Christ through gospel living Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here, Peter is explaining that we are a peculiar people because our home and our kingdom and our king is not of this world, which makes us pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, people who don't really belong here. people who are just traveling and passing through and because we're not of this world we do not live like this world or we should not live like this world that is what sets us apart here and what alienates us is our values our pursuit of holiness our dependence on mercy and our love for each other and our faith in Christ alone now in context Peter is challenging the church in Asia minor to abstain from passions that are passions of the flesh which are waging war against their souls. And in its place, he's asking to promote and display righteousness, 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now we know throughout of, throughout the whole scope of scripture that we know that God desires us to be holy, that God desire us, desires us to be obedient. That much is made abundantly clear throughout the entire Bible. But Peter gives them another extremely important reason for living in a way that honors God. And we read that in the second half of verse 12. He says that when you, so that when they speak against you, these are people in the world as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is huge here. Peter's saying that our abstaining from sin and promoting godliness and holiness can actively change the culture around us, the community around us. <clears throat> we and the priority list. We live in holiness and obedience to first honor and glorify our father in heaven. But as we do that, the side, the the side effect of that is that the culture sees us and they're changed by that because they're seeing the living, breathing Christ as we're operating in the spirit in obedience and doing the father's will. In Matthew five, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. What Jesus is communicating here is that we are actively changing the taste of our culture as well as changing the mood lighting in the world by pursuing Christ and his kingdom throughout our lives. We're changing the world around us. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Second Corinthians chapter two, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul is saying our peculiarities as a people actively change the aroma or the the temperature in the room. It's gonna be either from death to death, which is speaking of spiritual death, or from life to spiritual life in Christ. And these peculiarities, they manifest themselves in us as God's people striving for human flourishing, justice, mercy, healthy communities, righteousness, godliness, holiness, all of these things in effort to help redeem and restore creation by displaying the glory of Christ. This is so hopeful because this shows us that evangelism is not only preaching righteousness, which it absolutely is, but it's also living righteousness in Christ alone. Not just preaching, which it absolutely has to be, but also just living in light of what we're preaching, living out the gospel. Our words, our hobbies, our passions, our pursuits, our interests should be means to both evangelize and enjoy God. Everything we do as Christians should be pointing people towards God. I like what Bruce Ashford said. He said, our participation as Christians in the arts, the sciences, the public square, the academy, the marketplace, and in every social and cultural endeavor, should be taken serious for anything under the sun can be directed towards God or away from him a great question to ask ourselves this morning is in our day-to-day activities our school our work our leisure our thought life our social life are we directing things towards God or away from him how are we living our lives How are we directing all that God has blessed us with, given us our talents, our hobbies, our gifts, our careers? How are we focusing that towards God in a way to where God is glorified and people can see that and have their eyes turned straight towards the Lord? As a peculiar people group, our current dent in our culture is only a preview of what it was in the garden. But it's also a shadow of what's to come in the heavenly city. And by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, people will see and they'll desire what we have because God is so good and so precious. Our third and final point, let me wrap this up. The church proclaims the excellencies of Christ through gospel loving. Now I'm not talking about loving like the gospel teaches us or shows us. I'm not talking about loving as Christ loves us. I'm talking about just straight up loving the gospel, being a huge fan, admiring it, having it be the most treasured possession in your heart and your mind, the gospel is being the crown jewel of your life. First Peter 2.6 says, For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The chief quality in the garden was for God's creation to find their complete delight in him, to be 100% satisfied in him, as the God who provided everything, met all their needs, gave them all the joy and pleasure. All they needed was community and fellowship with the Lord. But in the garden, they didn't. They didn't see God as that way. They sought another source of delight and they chose to leave their first love to find love in another place. And the prophet Jeremiah put it this way in chapter, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. All of mankind has forsaken God, the source of life, security and refreshment and have gone to try and find water somewhere else. That is the world we live in. That was us before Jesus. It's just trying to find satisfaction and purpose and meaning in something other than our creator. In other words, we had lost sight of how precious God is. And if man was cast out of the garden due to losing sight of the preciousness of God, then it only stands that re-entrance into the kingdom is only gained by rediscovering the preciousness of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this preciousness found in Jesus in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ it is here that we see the chief quality reinstated into our hearts the preciousness of Christ and we need that because if Christ is not precious to us then living in community pursuing justice and mercy attempting to change culture amounts to nothing of eternal value if Christ is not precious to us then we have no business doing these things because they have no eternal weight or value if we don't consider him precious then we won't consider him worth our lives and it won't take long before we start digging out holes looking for water elsewhere to satisfy what we need now without under- the understanding of jesus honestly as christians like we don't natu- as, as humans we don't naturally desire to expose our lives to each other i mean nobody wants to like air their dirty laundry to share their deepest sin None of us wanna do that. We don't want to because it's humiliating, it's dangerous, we wanna cover it up. Without Christ, we don't feel vulnerable. We don't wanna feel vulnerable or exposed. We don't wanna show people, I mean, we do wanna show people that we have it all together, when really under the surface, we don't. We don't naturally promote holiness because we are sinful by nature. We fall short every time. But I wanna encourage you today, church, that praise be to God, Christ died for you today. Christ died for sinners. We have been made new and whole. We have been restored by the precious blood of Jesus. How can we not consider Christ precious when we actually think about the gospel? Think go the fact that we were dead in our sins, undeserving of anything, yet God sent his innocent son to live the life we couldn't live and die on the cross for us so that we might have life in him. 1 Peter 2.10 is one of my favorite passages as far as how Peter defines the peculiarities of his people. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I wanna end on that note. Church, we have received mercy. We identify as a people who have a merciful and tender and loving God. And this mercy has been given to all who believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In closing, if you're like me, which I'm sure some of you are, you might need constant reminders of how precious Christ is. Every single morning I need a reminder of how precious Christ is. And I want to read 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25. And I want just to sit in because it's one of those passages that's meant so much to me as a Christian just sharing what Christ has done for us. And so please just sit and listen and receive. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but now but have now returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls.